We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. You loot, we shoot. That was Ron DeSantis' message down in Florida uh, to people who might have been thinking about taking advantage of the chaos following their most recent hurricane there. And here's what he said, quote, This part of Florida, you've got a lot of advocates of the Second Amendment. If you go break into somebody's house and you're trying to loot, these are people that are going to be able to defend themselves and their families, so I would not do it. In other words, they'll shoot you. Is there anybody out there who could possibly disagree with this? Now, I bet we could find a few liberal Democrats out there who would, of course, but some of them probably in positions of power, too. It seems like a pretty good message to me. Who could possibly be against a homeowner shooting someone who decided to come into their damaged house and steal their belongings? Speaking of looting, have you seen the video of the Home Depot in Long Beach, California? It's been everywhere with multiple people wearing masks and grabbing large power tools. And I don't know what they are, but they're throwing them on a cart and just walking out of the store with them in a cart. So how long is this going to go on? A year or two ago, I had a guest on uh, this show who trains guard dogs, and I asked him why more business owners were coming, weren't were uh, coming to people like him for help. I think he actually said that he thought there was going to be an uptick in that, but I haven't seen it. I'm still waiting for one video of a looter getting a large chunk taken out of his butt by a highly annoyed German shepherd. You would think a nice big German shepherd sitting somewhere near the door would make a looter think twice about uh, shopping without paying there, but... Or you could keep the dog enclosed somewhere. Just, you know, spring him before the looter gets the stuff out the door. After a few of those videos went viral, it might get a lot more people to get dogs. And it would also create lots of people in the looting community uh, thinking twice about doing what they do best, which is stealing stuff. Governor DeSantis has it right. No mercy for looters. Somebody let the dogs out. And when we come back, we're going to talk about toxic masculinity and why America needs more of it. And in our second half hour, we're going to talk to the first black woman elected to statewide office in Virginia. She's the lieutenant governor there now and a rising superstar in the Republican Party. And she has a book out. Stick around. Five years ago, when I was getting ready to do this, uh, start the show, I suggested only uh, half-kiddingly, that we call it toxic masculinity. Uh, it didn't happen, but I'm always open to changing it if the management would go along with it. We have spent a lot of time here talking about the war on masculinity and the feminization of American men. I don't think things have gotten any better since then. Apparently, Mark Tapson of FrontPageMag.com doesn't think so either. He joins us now. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So the sub-headline of your piece there uh, at Front Page Mag is um, an emasculated civilization is a doomed civilization. Um, how yep. emasculated is America right now, and how close are we to being doomed, I guess, is the question. <laughs> well, that's a good question, uh, and I agree with you. I think that masculinity is in bad shape these days. Uh, in fact, it's 
pretty common knowledge. I think a lot of conservative commentators are, are, are beginning to talk about this issue of the so-called crisis of masculinity or the war on masculinity. I, I think that's one of the top um, issues of our time. And uh, yeah, I think we're definitely in, in decline in terms of, uh, uh, of what masculinity means in America today and in the Western, in Western civilization at large also. But especially in America, you know, as you alluded to a moment ago, we're facing uh, a half century or more of, of feminist assault on mm-hmm. uh, family values and on the nuclear family. And of course, the, that's had a, a major impact on how we perceive masculinity in this country. Uh, and you're also, you refer to toxic masculinity, which uh, is now kind of a household term. I mean, a few years ago, it was not so much, but uh, now everybody knows about toxic masculinity. And the, the, the problem with that term is that it suggests that that men's nature, that they're very, um, you know, the characteristics that make them masculine is poisonous. Mm-hmm. So this is a terrible message to be uh, uh, imposing on a couple of generations now of, of young men and boys who are made to feel like uh, their very nature is harmful and that they're contributing to rape culture and that they're misogynistic oppressors of women and all of these terrible messages that the culture has been uh, hammering young men with. So we're in kind of a sad shape now. I would say that there's reason for optimism in the sense that uh, a lot of of us are now talking about it, and and there are a lot of uh, um, major figures like Jordan Peterson, whom I would call masculinity gurus in a way, because they're, they're raising this issue of what it means to be a man. And even Senator Josh Hawley, for example, uh, has written a, a book called Manhood, and he's kind of taken that on as a cause of his. So uh, at least we're talking about it a lot more, and, uh, and a lot of conservative men are trying to, to lift, up, <laughs> lift up boys and young men out of this, uh, this aimlessness and... Uh, this drift that they settled into as a result of being hammered for 50 years by feminism. Yeah, so I guess that's the question. How did so many masculine traits that humans took for granted for thousands of years yes. uh, become considered toxic? When did that start? Is there what, Can you put your finger on You mentioned it's the, you know, the feminist movement, and that goes yeah. back 50, 60 years when that, I guess, began in seriousness. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, who... who who decided that these traits all of a sudden were not good? <laughs> well, that's, that also is a good question. I mean, I would blame that on what we call cultural Marxism. Um, and so you could trace that all the way back to Karl Marx, um, because Karl Marx explicitly called for the abolition of the family. You know, uh, Karl Marx said that in order to create this kind of collectivist utopia that he dreamed of, um, the family unit, as we understood it, was going to have to dissolve, and um, that these bonds of these parental bonds and the bonds between husband and wife and that sort of they were just going to have to dissolve into a collectivist society uh, where the state essentially became our father, uh, our father figure, or our God even. So uh, cultural Marxism has been something that's been in the works even longer than feminism. In fact, I would say that feminism is, a, is an offshoot or uh, uh, kind of for, for many years, it was kind of the tip of the spear of the cultural Marxist assault on our society. And now that I think that that has uh, transferred over to transgenderism, I think gender ideology now is the tip of the spear. But 
But it's uh, it, you can trace it back to Marx and his desire to abolish the family. So, uh, and especially to um, uh, to eliminate the role of men in society, because men, uh, you know, they they constitute a, kind of a last line of defense against the totalitarian state. So if you can erase that, if you can emasculate men and uh, neuter them, essentially, then there's nothing left to stand in the way of, of the state taking over society. I, that all makes sense, but I, I still, there are a lot of people out there with ideas, and at some mm-hmm. point, I don't know when, Marx uh, goes back a long time, mm-hmm. at some point, uh, that it went saying that was something bad about being a father and yeah. something bad about being the provider and being fat, bad about you know not breaking into uh, sob sobbing uh, when you when something <laughs> upset you to yeah. to at some point when you went and told people that that wasn't a good idea you were going up against people who thought it was a those were good things yeah. uh, for 5000 years or a couple thousand years so how how do, what what put people in position to, to start believing that kind of stupidity? Because there are a lot of crazy that, ideas out there. At some point, that was a crazy idea, wasn't it? Yes, and that's a great question. It really started, uh, I mean, and cultural Marxism itself started in the universities. It's, it started at the university level. And uh, so generation after generation, these ideas began to sort of percolate in the universities and then gradually uh, drift out into society from there. And as the left began to focus decades ago on controlling the culture, then they were able to kind of perpetuate or promote those messages about masculinity and about the family through the culture. I mean, the left, you know, we talk about the culture war sometimes that we're fighting, but we lost the culture war, actually. The conservatives lost it years ago. We're we're kind of waging a culture insurgency now as opposed to fighting a culture war because the left for many years has owned the the, uh, entertainment arena um, academia uh, the the news media so uh, they've been able to sort of push their agenda through the culture and that's where everything starts culture or politics flows downstream from culture as they say Um, so it all starts in the culture and it's just been a gradual uh, change over the course of decades where these messages have just filtered out into society and as new generations come along they embrace those more and more so it's been a gradual half century process of of sort of absorbing these ideas and attitudes that began in universities just a couple of days ago carlos santana i think speaking of culture who was mm-hmm. um, a big deal even going as far back as when I was in college a thousand years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he just apologized. I think he apologized and then retracted his apology, but he came out, the last I heard, he came out a couple of days ago and he apologized for having said that men are men and women are women. Uh-huh. That's where we well, are. I, that, that's where, How do you, you better have an insurgency if you're going to fight that because there's a yeah. large portion of, of people out there who actually agree, uh, disagree with him and think he should have apologized for saying it. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's blasphemy. That's considered blasphemy these days to um, you know to acknowledge that men are men and women are women. Uh, I mean, a large part of this gender ideology, a, a large um, part of that agenda, is to essentially eradicate the definitions of male and female and men and women. And you can see now that we have even Supreme Court justices who will 
who are unwilling to define what a home is. So, I mean, we've reached the point now where uh, our cultural and political elites now have absorbed these ideas and these attitudes, and they're kind of steering the culture where they want it to go. Uh, so it, it seems insane to people like you and me to say, well, you know, you can't define what a woman is. That seems crazy. But uh, to the ruling cultural class in America and in the Western world today, that is a that's not a crazy idea at all. They're they're pushing it hard. I mean, the, the Biden administration has openly said, you know, that they're making gender ideology a major uh, a major part of their foreign policy. So it's um, it, it's something that's being pushed by the people at the top. Yeah, well, it's, uh, and you mentioned that, that, that this is an insurgency. That just what you described there, it's going to require a lot more than a, a minor insurgency to overcome that, isn't it? Yes, and I I think it's starting to happen. I mean, I, it, there's a lot of of uh, um, room for optimism, I think, here, or a lot of cause, I should say, for optimism, because people are starting to wake up and to fight back. Um, if anything good could be said about the pandemic, it's that it woke up a lot of parents around the country to what is being taught to their children in the classroom, and it's just outraged a lot of people. And that's a positive thing. That's a that is a very important step forward is having parents understand that the left is working hard to drive a wedge between their children and the parents uh, as part of this agenda to abolish the family. So um, now that uh, a lot of parents are on to them, then you're seeing a, a lot of pushback at a grass, grassroots level. And that's what it's going to take. Well, we are a few months away here. Uh, possibly in uh, Pittsburgh and Allegheny County, from electing a socialist um, mm-hmm. oh, as a yes. county, county executive. And they've already sent a socialist, a Democrat socialist, to Congress. Her district is here in the city. So um, how is the war on capitalism connected to this war on masculinity? I, obviously, if it's Marxism, they don't like capitalism. <laughs> Exactly. It's uh, it's really all kind of tied together. You know, the war on masculinity, the war on the family, the war on, on capitalism, because capitalism also, you know, is, is anti-Marxist and it's uh, it stands in the way of this collectivist utopia that the left dreams of, you know, where they can make everyone equal and no one has more than anyone else. And uh, uh, they've eradicated bigotry and racism. And, you know, it's just this this utopian vision that um, that the left has, which is, I think is one of the major distinctions between left and right. The right, you know, we understand that human nature has fallen, uh, that people are, are sinful, imperfect beings, and even though we want to try to improve ourselves and be the best we can be, we'll never be perfect, and so we can never create a utopian society. But the left doesn't believe that at all. The left believes, you know, that they can socially engineer a, a perfect collectivist world um, and, um, and, you know, destroying capitalism is, is a major aspect of that dream. We're talking to Mark Tapson of Front Page Mag. Uh, you can find his piece on this. It's a long piece, and you should really take the time to read it. Um, he's, you can find it at frontpagemag.com. Uh, we have about three minutes or so left here. Uh, Mark, you also, uh, well, I guess the question is, there, there seems to be, and you point out uh, uh, an obvious void out there. Is toxic masculinity better than no masculinity at all? That would be the question I'd ask. (laughs) 
Well, you know, this toxic, this phrase toxic masculinity is very misleading. It basically tries to label men's natural instincts for, uh, for, for a kind of an adventurousness and uh, natural leadership and the natural desire to protect and to defend and to, and e- even our aggression, even male aggression, you know, it's, that's not automatically a bad thing. I mean, you know, aggression is, is what's required to combat uh, evil in the world. You know, yeah. there's, there's such a thing as, as uh, aggression channeled in the right way. And of course, that's what you want is you want, you don't want to eradicate these qualities in men. You want to channel them in the right direction. Um, and that's where, you know, you, you steer it away from any kind of toxic behavior toward, uh, toward a, a moral sense for men and uh, the, this sense of uh, sacrifice and service for their families and for their communities and their country. Yeah, well, toxic is kind of a subjective thing, and it's, it's, it's a war. It, 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 I guess it's not just about toxic max- masculinity with a lot of people. It's about masculinity. That it, yes. it just, it just we don't need men. Who needs them? Yes. Well, think about Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan from, you know, fairly recently. It was, the future is female, she said, you know. I mean, what a terrible message that is. Uh, and also what a short-lived future it's going to be if it's just female. You know, we need to have a future where both men and women work together in complementary ways and respectful ways. That's the future that we need to be aiming for. But to say the future is female basically just uh, excludes half the population. It says half the population doesn't matter. Um, and uh, that's, you know, these are terrible cultural and political messages to be sending to our, our young men. Got about a minute left. Uh, how do we prevent the culture from becoming totally emasculated then? Wow. Well, I think we've got to do a number of things. We have to push back hard against this cultural Marxist assault on the family. Uh, we have to raise young men and uh, you know raise our boys and young men to be more chivalrous and to and to uh, embrace their nature, but to steer it in the right direction, in a moral direction. A lot of that is going to have to come from uh, taking our education into our own hands, and that means homeschooling yeah. or create creating a kind of a parallel culture in which, uh, you know, we create schools for ourselves. And uh, also we've got to uh, fight back in the entertainment arena. We've got to create entertainment for ourselves that doesn't uh, push these, these destructive messages. So it's, it's an uphill battle, but there's cause for optimism, and I think we're, uh, we're gaining ground. Well, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, that's Mark Tapson of FrontPageMag.com, and we'll be right back. Winsome Earl Sears is a rising superstar in the Republican Party. She's the first black woman elected to state office in Virginia. She's a conservative, and she says she's living the American dream. She has a new book called How Sweet It Is, Defending the American Dream, and she joins us now. Lieutenant Governor, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yes, hi. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. (laughs) So, um... You, I guess you could have called the book the uh, you could have called it "Living the American Dream," but why did you go with "Defending the American Dream"? Well, because you know when you see what's going on in our country, and apparently America's just not good enough for some people the way that she is. They've got to make her 
or remake her in their own image, uh, then you've got to know that they've lost their minds. I mean, America continues on the path of becoming the more perfect union, you know, this experiment that we're doing, and we don't want to be what they want us to be, which is some socialist country. We've seen that happen. We saw, we saw that in Jamaica when they tried to make us a, a socialist Democrat uh, republic. And I can tell you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it doesn't work. And we have the best that there is. It's not utopia. And by the way, if you find utopia, then when you go move there, it won't be utopia. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, so, but what, do you, what, has it that, what is it that's happened that we've reached the point where the American dream has to be defended? It didn't used to be. That's because we all believed in the goodness of America. We believed that she was still that city on a shining hill, that, you know, we may have our faults here in America, but by golly, this is the best place after all. Um, you know, we, we believe in rights. We believe, of course, in, and I love the First Amendment. And part of the First Amendment is I also have the right not to listen to you. I mean, think about that. Yeah. And, 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 and um, they're just trying to remake us into something else. And they're, they're kinder, I like to say, than Jesus. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they're using our tax money to do it. And then they're making policies that turn our children against our, their own families. So all I'm saying is you, as they say on the streets, you do you. Let's just leave each other be and let America be the best possible place again. Um, you, you write that you were shocked uh, by having to give a victory speech on election night. Um, why were you shocked? You didn't expect to become the lieutenant governor of Virginia? Well, I was just, I, I don't know. I never thought I'd have to give a victory speech, although in Virginia, you know, the lieutenant governor doesn't, uh, doesn't run with the, the governor because the gubernatorial candidate doesn't choose me as the running mate. Mm -hmm. I have to win my own election. But I guess I just forgot that that's one of the things that we do. And I'm just so not political. You know, I was elected 22 years ago, and I came back after 20 years. I was in for a term, and, and then I was out, and now I'm back. And so I, I, I just wasn't expecting it. I, I thought I would win just because what I would see, but I never thought I'd have to give a victory speech. <laughs> <laughs> what did you run on? Well, common sense. I mean, go figure. We can't have yes. that now. Come on. What kind of a we, we, thing is that? The simple things. The simple yeah. things. Like, we want safe neighborhoods. We yep. want our children to live in safety. This is my little piece of land. I'm paying the mortgage here. Get off my grass type of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, then the other thing is the economy. Uh, we want good jobs. And in Virginia, if we drive businesses away, then... Who's going to pay for all the beautiful things that we like? Who do you think pay for the roads and the schools and, and, and the bridges and, and the quality of life? It's the job creators, because government is not a job-creating entity. And then, of course, education. Education backs all of that up. Our children need to have a good foundation in education so that they can have a good job. And, by the way, get out of the house. You know what I mean? And, and they have to have a future. And parents need to be back in the saddle 
and the government needs not to make decisions that separate us from our authority to raise our children in the way that we see fit. I mean, these were just basic things. Yeah, well, we're, we're talking to Winsome Earl Sears. She's the uh, author of a book. Well, first of all, she's the lieutenant governor of Virginia, but she's also the author of a book called How Sweet It Is, Defending the American Dream. Yeah, school choice is real big with me here. Um, I, I happen to think that the Republicans have talked a good game on that, uh, but not uh, backed it up enough. And I, I, you keep hearing about it a little bit more now. Uh, especially since COVID and people being locked out and all that stuff. But you tell me, do you think that the Republicans are nationally are emphasizing this enough, and is it going to become a reality in more states? I think you're seeing that actually the states that have begun to adopt school choice are more Republican states. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to do here in Virginia, but we've not been able to accomplish it because we don't have a Republican Senate. But we ran on school choice, and we're trying to fulfill that as a campaign promise. And that's why we are working, you know, uh, up to our gills to make sure that we keep the House necessarily and change the Senate to a Republican Senate so that we can get school choice finally for parents. Because, you know, this thing about uh, boys and girls bathrooms and boys and girls sports, and these people aren't ashamed to stand on the victory stand, you know, and, and then everybody's clapping them. What are you clapping? You're, you're clapping a lie. And our poor uh, daughters, they've lost out on college scholarships and things like that. And, and so we just need to get common sense back again. That's it. Well, you uh, and the governor there uh, ran on, as you mentioned, education was big, school choice and all that. Um, and what was it about when did you get the feeling that it was starting to resonate with people and and well, that, that it I, seemed to, did it did you think that it was the the um the issue that puts you over the top yes and i came back into politics because really i saw that our children were not learning and that if something wasn't done it would just be all downhill it would be you know as they say hell to pay for our children and and I was told, well, it's not polling well. And I told them, I don't care if it's polling well or not. I believe that this is where we're going to go. And so that was what I had. I, You know, as vice president of the state board of education, I knew that the children weren't learning. I saw, for example, where by the time our children reached the, what, the eighth grade? Uh, no, the fourth grade. Fully uh, 35% of white children could not do math. And then the numbers jumped to 45%. Uh, Asian children, 70% of Hispanic children, and then black children, it was 84% who couldn't do math. And and what is going to happen to these kids? So by then, all the nonsense began to start with the transgenders in, in yeah. the classroom and uh, the governor, the previous Democratic governor who had locked down the schools and hearing that the kids, some of them, 40% of them had never even logged on their computers not one time and then they were just uh bumped up everybody was socially promoted so it was a mess and it all after a while it all came to a head democrats said enough was enough and they voted for us we couldn't have won in virginia had 
Democrats and independents not decided that we were the ones who made more sense for the future of their children. Um, here in Pennsylvania, we have a governor, Shapiro, a Democrat, mm-hmm. who promised school choice for any any uh, student who was found to be in the lower 15 percent of schools or something. That should be the lower 60 percent. But anyway, it was 15. And then he reneged on the promise. and But he's now out there bragging that he's now passed a law that was gonna, that's going to give every kid in Pennsylvania free breakfast. And he says oh, that boy. you can't learn on an empty stomach. So they traded school choice for a, a Pop-Tart, I guess, is what he ended up doing. Well, let's hope that the voters remember that, because sometimes, unfortunately, we have short memories and we think, well, maybe this time they will, uh, well, they'll live up to their promises. And no, no, if they show you who they are the first time, believe them. And either you offer yourself as the candidate or you get behind the the eventual candidate, you know, whether it's helping them knock on doors, even donating $5, talking them up, putting a sign in your yard, whatever it is, because we're talking about the future of our country. You're the first black woman elected to, um, uh, to a state office in Virginia. And the issue was, as you said, school part of a big part of it was um, education. Um, How did you do with black voters? Did they, were, well, did, were you selling the idea to them? Were they buying it? Well, here's the thing. I think sometimes we as Republicans think that, you know, we will just never win the, the black vote because mm-hmm. it looks like it's a very daunting task. And you don't get all of the white votes, so why would you think you're going to get all of the black votes? Right. So you have to take your story to the people. You have to go where everyone lives. And, and works and whatever it is, and, and tell them who you are and why you and not the other person, and let them make the decision. But you don't see the vote, and I think, you know, as sometimes as Republicans, we thought it would take too long and uh, too much money, and so we just let it be. And I tell you, I saw Governor Yunkin in as many places as me. He was all over whatever the community was. If there was uh, someone there, he was there. And we haven't really made that big of a push, but we did this time. And I had, a, well, I had a more of the black vote, um, understandably, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just, just the way things work. And, and then, of course, we had total more of the black vote this time around than we've ever had as Republicans in Virginia. So black Republican conservatives work. It works. It works. <laughs> because, look, if you're going to take more territory, then you've got to find conservative voters. They're yeah. in the Democratic Party, but they don't even know that they're conservative because nobody has ever come to them with that message. And the only message they hear are that Republicans are bad, Republicans are bad. And by the way, did I tell you Republicans are bad? I'll give you an example. So I was in a, a, a corner of Virginia and not known to be a bastion of republicanism. And we, we stopped, and uh, I walked into the, the black barbershop, and I said, gentlemen, I'm your lieutenant governor. Let's talk. <laughs> they looked at me as if I, and I said, no, 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 I'm with them. I'm really the lieutenant governor. I sat down. We had a wonderful discussion, the customers in the chair, the barbers, everybody. And, and then as I was leaving, the, 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 the owner said to me, I have been on this corner now 
for 12 years, and not once has any politician ever come in here and asked me for my vote. That's great. Yeah, so it's a Democratic area, so that means the Democrats never came because they figured they have him, and the Republicans never came because they figured the Democrats have him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So Now, he's going to remember that. Yeah, and so when do we get to the point where voters, black voters, white voters, Asian voters, all voters, stop thinking that someone is going to do a better job for you if they have the same skin color as you, or someone is not going to do a good job for you if they don't have the skin color that you have. We, we're not there we're yet. Getting, no, I, no, but I think we're getting there because you're seeing more voters of all colors and stripes uh, in, in the Republican Party. Um, you know, you see more Asian representatives. You see more black representatives, um, more Latino representatives. We're getting the message out. We're not taking any voters for granted. We ourselves are going, and, you know, whether we're booed or whatever, insulted, then that's just it. But we'll take whoever wants change. And, by the way, let me say this. I'm hoping that, as Republicans, we're just letting each other be, that we will vote for whoever we as Republicans want to vote for, and then we'll come together behind the candidate. But let's not be like the Democrats where, like they tell me, if I'm, uh, I'm not black if I don't vote for yeah. the Democrats. We can't be them. Uh, we're, talking, we're talking with Winsome Earl Sears. The book is How Sweet It Is, Defending the American Dream. I have a little over two minutes left. Uh, I want to give you a chance to tell you a little bit of your story, beginning with your dad uh, coming from Jamaica with a dollar seventy-five in his pocket back in 1963, when things, by the way, were not good for black people here, especially in the South. What uh, caused him to do that, and how did that, uh, well, obviously it changed your life. Well, you know, uh, being a Jamaican, he was really a British citizen, so it would have been easier for him to go to England to try to restart his life. And in fact, his his siblings went there, but he decided, no, America was the place, and it was harder to get into America. You know, you document, documents, and wait your turn and all that. But he came, and he, he just decided America give him that second chance at life, and he made the best of it, and and of course, with the dollar seventy-five, he took any job he could find, and and then put himself through school with that money. And now he's comfortably retired. And and then he came and got me when I was six years old. And 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 look at me now. I mean, I am second in command in the former capital of the Confederacy. So don't tell me that America is not the place where you can realize your dreams if you are given the opportunity opportunity, not equity, because equity means equal outcomes, and there is no place in life you get equal outcomes. But if you give me an equal opportunity, I'll be all right. Got it. Less than a minute left, and i got a lot more questions for you, but this one real quick. You're a proud Virginian, and you you talk about how uh, proud you are of people like Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. I don't have to tell everybody what's been happening to those guys recently, especially as it applies to black people. You know, yes, the, the criticism they've taken, slaveholders and all that stuff. Yeah, and, you know, we acknowledge all parts of them. Um, there is nobody who is perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's why when we talk about this more perfect union, America is becoming. And when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, when Jefferson did with the rest of the committee, they wrote that 
we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in fact, there was a passage that it's called the forgotten passage now, and it, it, it hits the king, King George, by saying that you have brought a people from a distant land and enslaved them and commercialized them, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, they voted to keep that out, but it was there. And, and so, in fact, Dr. King was the one who said we really didn't need another law to decide that black people were equal to everyone else because it was already there in the founding documents. So, you know, I, I think we've got to just move on is what we have to do. Um, there's nothing in the back. We've got to forgive and then we've got to move on. And that's what we have to tell our children. Well, uh, Winsome Earl Sears, there's a good reason why you, uh, as I said, are a rising superstar in the Republican Party. I can't hear you enough. I hope you're heard a lot more, and I appreciate you being heard on my radio show here today. Yes, sir. And remember, I was elected under those same principles from those men from way back then. Absolutely. The book is called How Sweet It Is, Defending the American Dream. We'll be right back. So uh, I guess they're still uh, cleaning up down there. The hurricane in Florida, you heard what uh, at the top of the show, if you missed it, I, I gave um, Ron DeSantis a lot of credit for saying, uh, you loot, we shoot. That seems to me like a pretty good way to approach uh, looters. But um, uh, Adam Schiff, this guy, this guy said uh, something to the effect of um, if you, if you, if this, 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 Hurricane in Miami in Florida should be the final straw in getting you to believe that climate change is real. Something to that effect. It should finally get you to. It should finally convince you. I guess something like that. To, that um, that climate change is real. That's what that's what Adam Schiff said. So you know, there were, like I go, I guess there weren't. Maybe it's me. I've been around for a few years. It's August. It's Florida. And it's a hurricane. I don't know. I think they've been going on for a while down there, haven't they? Maybe a couple thousand years, million years. I don't know how long. How long has it been? The, the planet had uh, had uh, water and air and weather, and and it it gets the you know the water and the uh, and the ocean gets heated, and then what? I'm, I'm not a I'm not a climate. I'm not a weather man. I don't have. I'm not a scientist. Uh, but uh, hurricanes you know they come in august in florida why does somebody have to put a a some kind of a have a reason for it other than it's the planet earth and this is what happens and here's the other thing that's going to happen in like places like i don't know north dakota wyoming south dakota guess what it's going to do this winter snow a lot and you know here's the other thing amazingly enough it got really hot this summer. Guess where? In the desert. It was hot. And here's the thing. Tampa, Florida, before air conditioning, was Youngstown, Ohio. Okay? And people used to, the hurricane would come. It would take about 20 minutes to evacuate everybody. They'd clean up. The, they'd, they'd wait for it to go away. They'd come back. And they'd clean it up. And there wasn't all this drama. Now you have to have drama because there's, there are 3 million people living there. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe there shouldn't be that many people living in Tampa or in that area. I don't know. It's a hurricane. 
Adam Schiff needs to go away and shut up. I'll talk to you tomorrow.